there because there are some causes that really having more information and generating more awareness is kind of impact in itself. I think that anti-smoking is um, a pretty good example of this. I mean, you think about even 20, 30 years ago, people didn't have the same kind of knowledge and awareness of of the detrimental health effects of smoking or secondhand smoke. And through kind of large-scale marketing campaigns, um, a lot of different organizations, Truth being one of them, were able to make a really big difference. Um, so I think that sometimes marketing really is a form of impact. Other times, it I, I agree, I mean, it can be maybe too much. I think that really it kind of depends on the issue and the goals and how the um, the marketing kind of relates back to the impact. So if, if the marketing is one of the ways that, so for example, for Do Something, we have... Um, we do PSAs and we, we show them in schools and we typically have sponsors or kind of donated media for the for the marketing. So we don't spend a, a ton of money on marketing. We have a, a very tiny marketing budget. But at the same time, these PSAs and the different um, influencer partnerships are really how we spread the word about our campaigns and they're what leads to signups and then to action. Um, so I think that there is um, an I think that marketing does play an important role in social impact. That was Marie Peterson, a senior strategist at TMI Strategy, a strategy consulting group specialising in young people and social impact, working alongside some of the world's largest not-for-profits and corporate firms. TMI Strategy is also the earned revenue wing of DoSomething.org, which you may remember from last week's episode. My name is Regan Quick, and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. I remember late last year when Asunga was in exchange, he told me about TMI Strategy, and initially it sounded a bit out of place to have a strategy consulting agency spun out of Do Something. But when I began to think about it more, it made perfect sense, and was in fact a pretty clever model for Do Something to generate revenue, which of course is a question we've considered many times on our episodes. By using the data and learnings that Do Something has generated, TMI Strategy are able to provide incredible insights for their clients. Now, given that Melbourne and New York's time zones aren't the most compatible, it was quite an early recording session for both myself and Asanga. So if we, if we sound a little bit flat, we do apologize for that. The insights Marie gave us, not only in relation to her work, but also in how young people can begin to establish a network in the not-for-profit sector, is something that I found incredibly helpful. So I hope you enjoy our talk with Marie as much as we did. So my name is Marie Peterson. I am a senior strategist on the TMI strategy team at DoSomething.org. And we are the earned revenue source of Do Something, which is one of the largest organizations for young people and social change. Um, I've worked for the organization for about three years. I did my undergraduate degree at NYU in sociology. And I'm generally passionate about, well, a lot of things, um, but kind of women's rights, especially kind of around the movement with gender inequality in the workplace. I'm also very passionate about food and exercise um, and music. How did you uh, kind of come to TMI? Yeah, so the way that I came to TMI is pretty unique, actually. So 
our Do Something CEO, Aria Finger, used to teach a class at NYU called Nonprofit Business Management. And I was actually one of her students in the class at my senior year. I was really excited about what she was talking about and the work Do Something was doing. So I, in the spring of my senior year, interned as the global intern at Do Something. And then afterwards, I was hired on the TMI strategy team. Okay, cool. So what, what did you kind of do in that internship? So in the internship, I was working with some of the global partners. Um, the program has now changed, but at the time, we worked a bit more closely with affiliates in seven different countries. Um, and so I spent a lot of time talking to our partners in Ghana and in Indonesia about the work they were doing and how we could support their work. Um, and they were running some Do Something campaigns at the time. And actually, we have a sabbatical program here at Do Something. And so this fall, I took a sabbatical and went to work with the Indonesia um, organization called um, Do Something Indonesia for my sabbatical. So it was a really cool way to kind of bring back the work I had been doing as an intern um, into my life. At uni, at college, um, were you always thinking you wanted to, to get into the not-for-profit space straight after um, you graduated? Um, so I would say I'm a classic case of someone who has a lot of interests and is generally good at a lot of different things. Um, so I actually went into university undecided. I thought I might want to do international relations. I thought about journalism. I thought about nonprofits. Um, and then once I fell into sociology, I um, thought a lot more about the nonprofit space and how the social change space. And then it was really the class I took with Aria that kind of sealed the deal on going into nonprofits after graduation. Is that the kind of norm? Because I think in, at, le at least back home here in Australia, sometimes um, when you kind of go to a, a top university, you're often um, kind of pigeonholed into like going to certain degrees and um, professions, like kind of more high paying professions, like law, or like banking or like finance or something along those lines. Was that ever something that crossed your mind? Um, so I think, I mean, law crossed my mind, mm. but the other, like finance never really crossed my mind. I mean, some days I wonder, I'm like, huh, would I have been a great philanthropist if I <laughs> went into something that was a little bit more high paying? Um, but yeah, I never, I also, I mean, I grew up in a family where my dad is the director of an environmental learning center and my mom is a professor. So they very much work in of the nonprofit space mm. and so it was it was something that I kind of grew up in I guess uh, but I think in general like the U.S. system is that a lot of students go into college not having a great idea of what they want to do for better or worse uh, mm. I, I would say it's probably about a 50-50 split of people who have kind of a really strong direction either based on their own passions or based on kind of what their family does and then another group of students who are kind of figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm interested with um, that subject you took um, with Aria. How did that compare to actually doing the work? Because sometimes I feel um, like the theoretical knowledge um, you learn in college or uni is a bit detached from um, what the work is actually like in the field. How did you find that kind of transition? Definitely. So I actually took Aria's class twice. <laughs> So I took the class once and then I was her TA last fall. So I think one thing that's unique about the material we covered in that class is that it is very applicable to kind of the real world work experience. It's the only class Aria teaches. 
It's the only um, the only time she's a professor. She really is the CEO of a nonprofit. And so she makes an amazing effort to uh, make the content as relevant as possible. This being said, a lot of what we covered, I don't actually do in my day to day, but I really appreciate that I have the knowledge. So we covered, for example, kind of U.S. tax codes, what makes a um, nonprofit different from a for-profit. We covered kind of the financial aspect and the, the different revenue models. We covered marketing. We covered different service programs and how to measure impact. Um, and so I think it's just a good foundation to have because it allows me to, I think, have a little bit better understanding of what different parts of the organization work on. I guess right, if you right. didn't have that experience with that class, could you have potentially seen yourself making this decision to move to TMI and their strategy consulting? Or was it sort of that's sort of what got you in the space? You mean that's what got me into TMI or that's what got me into kind of social impact? I guess a bit of both, if you don't mind my asking. Yeah, so I mean, I had always been really interested in social impact. I was the, the leader at university. I was the leader of a kind of food equity club um, and did some volunteering. But I think that taking Aria's class was really what turned me more on to kind of new business models of nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, and TMI is a really unique model because we are we operate like an agency, like a strategy consultancy, um, but all of our kind of profits go to support do something. Um, and so it's, it's a new model that not a lot of organizations are using. Cool. Awesome. And it would be great to touch on TMI stuff soon, but I just have one more question sort of around your university life and sort of the skills you learned. So I guess when I, when I hear strategy consulting, I think the more typical someone who's done a Bachelor of Commerce or that more sort of businessy side of things. So how do you feel having that sort of degree in sociology has sort of changed, I guess, um, the way you work compared to some of your colleagues who may have come from a more traditionally commercial background, assuming they have, they may not, but I was just curious. I do. So I think that having studied sociology, um, one, I'm, I'm very interested in the research aspect of sociology. And so something that I really pursued as an undergraduate was independent research. And that's something that I've been able to kind of build on, build on those skill sets on the TMI team. And I also think that having studied sociology, it gives you a little bit more of a lens of kind of who are the people we're reaching rather than what are the services we're um, providing to them. And so I think it's a really nice pairing with different um, team members with other lived experiences, other professional experiences um, to combine kind of their expertise in maybe the communication side or the product side with my expertise in kind of understanding who our target audience is. Um, I also had a question um, with the the course you took. Um, I guess you're very fortunate to have um, someone like Ari be able to teach that course. I'm sure, um, I guess, many people at college, at uni or even not, um, within the kind of higher education tertiary system wouldn't have the chance to, to take something like that. Do you have any advice if someone kind of wants to learn about the not-for-profit space and perhaps like those new business models you're mentioning if they don't have access to a course like that? Yeah, so I think that there are a few different ways you could go about it. I think that um, reading different types of publications and even thinking about kind of the new startup models that are out there and how they could be applied to nonprofits. I mean, I read Fast Company pretty regularly, and we would occasionally reference Fast Company articles in class. Um, And then also just doing kind of your due diligence on nonprofits. And I think one thing that, especially in the U.S., not a lot of people necessarily know about is that 
all nonprofits are encouraged to disclose their finances. Um, so it's a form called the 990, and it's kind of good faith that a nonprofit would have that on its website. And you can really learn a lot about the organization from this document because it lays out kind of goals, or, or I'm sorry, not goals, but a um, kind of the, the mission statement. And it also breaks down where the money goes. Um, and so you can look at kind of where the organization says its priorities are on its website and then looking at kind of where they actually spend money, how money comes in the door. And that's a good way to kind of look at their business model. You can tell if an organization has um, more individual donors, corporate sponsorship, some sort of earned revenue, um, things like that. And then I think another way to, to learn about kind of these new business models and how nonprofits work is just to, if you can, do an internship or even kind of hop on the phone with someone who works at a nonprofit that you admire. Um, in my experience, people have been pretty willing to talk to me even just for 15 minutes if I'm interested in the work they're doing and really make a, a strong case for why talking to me is also beneficial to them. What's that process like? How do you, how do you find these people exactly? Um, so, I mean, I, one be benefit of living in I guess, a city is there are some different networking events. So in um, New York, there's a couple. There's Be Social Change. There are a few connector events. There are a couple co-working spaces dedicated to nonprofits, and they'll run mixers of sorts. Um, and so I think figuring out where those kind of gatherings are happening is a really quite, great way to connect with people because it's other people who want to talk to people in the space. Um, so they're automatically interested. Otherwise, uh, I mean, cold emailing sometimes works. <laughs> Other times, as you've probably figured out, is sometimes difficult. Um, but I think anytime you can be connected to someone through another person you know, or see if a nonprofit has a volunteer opportunity or a um, an internship program, those are good ways to kind of get your foot in the door and even just to, to meet some new people. Right. And should it should we be targeting um, pe people in like what spectrum of the organization? Like, should I be sh shooting off an email to Aria or like? Um, probably not to Aria. I mean, you could. <laughs> she, she sometimes responds. I think so. A, a nice thing about the the mixers is it's usually kind of young working professionals who are new in their career, so really trying to build a network. I think a lot of times if you're going more to the entry level people, they might have. Um, not necessarily more time, but they are closer to kind of the position you're in. They remember what mm. it was like to be a student who was uh, trying to figure things out. And so I think they would be, um, or I would hope other people would also be open to um, to talking to, to college students and other young um, working professionals. I know it's something I do. It's something my coworkers do. I'll occasionally get emails from former students at NYU from when I TA'd or just connections through um, friends of friends. And I'll meet with people for coffee or ha have a short phone conversation with them. Right. And you mentioned kind of emphasizing um, what um, there is for, for that other person you're contacting to kind of get out of the conversation. Sometimes I feel it, like it's hard as a student to think of like, what, what value can I provide? Is that like, do you have any advice around that? I think that if you... Let's see. So yeah, for a student, ways to provide value. So I think especially if the organization has young people as a target audience, um, I think framing it as a way saying like, hi, I'm really interested in the work you do. 
I would love to, to hear more about what you are um, working on and the types of projects you're doing. And then also adding a couple sentences, sentences saying, I've done some looking into your website and I know that a lot of the people you work with or a lot of the people you target are, um, are young college students. And if you ever have any focus groups or anything or want to do interviews with students, I'd be happy to connect with you or connect you with some of my friends. I do a lot of recruitment of students to do interviews with. And so if someone proactively reached out to me <laughs> and had people to interview, I'd be very excited. <laughs> Um, I had one more question going back to um, the form you were mentioning earlier and the finances. Um, I'm just thinking about um, not everyone's kind of financially inclined and when, when they see numbers, they're like, Ugh, like, why do I have to look at what the breakdown of where money's being spent um, is? Like, how do you approach that if you're not someone who kind of enjoys looking at like numbers and like, bunch of things where there's like, oh, this is how much we spent on this. Do you think it's still valuable, uh, a process? Oh, definitely. I would say that before I, I would say within the last two years is when I have become someone who actually enjoys looking at financial documents. <laughs> um, when I, especially when I was an undergrad, I was really kind of daunted by, by this type of information. Um, but I think that once you understand kind of the story that's being told with the numbers, or if you have someone who can help you um, understand this or explain it to you. I think that's when it becomes a little bit more approachable. Um, mm. but, but I mean, it is, it can be really daunting, especially if the document's like a hundred pages long. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess since we have talked quite a fair bit about TMI, um, can you give us a bit of a basic rundown of what they do as an organization? And then we'll start sort of talking about what you do specifically with them, Marie, if that's okay. Yeah, so TMI strategy is, like I said, the earned revenue source of dosomething.org. So we really are um, kind of a research and consulting agency. We work with clients to develop engagement strategies to um, reach young people around social change. That's kind of our, our main premise. Cool, fantastic. And I guess sort of your specific work with the organization? Yeah, so I focus on research in the kind of strategy realm of things. So this means that I do a lot of focus groups, a lot of interviews. Uh, we each work on different client projects. So at the moment, I'm working on a project with the College Board, and we run a youth advisory council for them, uh, which is a group of 100 young people, predominantly from the U.S., but we do have, I think, about five or six international members. And they give feedback on College Board products and services, like the SAT, APs um, and all kinds of test prep materials. And then that feedback is used by College Board to make sure that the student voice is kind of reflected in their work. Um, another project I'm working on right now is with a nonprofit out of Hawaii, and they're developing an SMS program for their um, the young people they serve who are um, a diverse group of students. And so we're helping them kind of understand who they're talking to and really refine the tone of their messaging and then actually building out the texting, the first month of the texting program for them uh, based on the expertise we have from Do Something around texting. I think it's now about 3 million members or so. So are all these organizations you work with not-for-profits or are you also working with corporate clients? So we also work with corporate clients. I'm not on any corporate projects at the moment, um, but at the, right now we are working with Nike. In the past, we've worked with Google, PwC, ESPN, um, and I think those are, those are the biggest ones we've worked with in the last 
six months to a year or so. But doing a variety of different projects with these corporations, some of them are more around employee engagement, especially um, engaging new hires in giving. So those people who are one to two years out of college. Um, other times we're working on more external facing type materials. So, for example, we worked with Microsoft and helped them um, kind of develop materials around the hour of code that would were more relevant to the audience they were reaching, specifically young women and um, underrepresented populations in the in the STEM fields. So mm. it really is kind of a mixture, but everything relates back to inspiring young people, empowering them um, to make social change. Had a kind of um, look at, at your website, and you mentioned that TMI's secret sauce, or I guess social advantage, is um, the data that young people you have from young people who sign up as Do Something members. Um, and I guess your knowledge around that and also, I guess, existing systems like the SMS system um, that you mentioned. Um, so how does that um, interplay work with Do Something and TMI? And I think particularly I asked this question in the light of, I guess, the privacy concerns and, you know, stuff around Cambridge Analytica and, you know, the Facebook data breach. Obviously, I'm not saying that you guys are doing anything on, on that untoward, but um, yeah, how does that work with data sharing and privacy? Right. So we don't actually share any um, member data with any clients. There's no overlap um, in that more of the, the when we talk about our secret sauce is really our relationship with do something and their data. It's more around best practices and learnings. And um, for example, do something and TMI do a lot of, of surveys of young people and have a good understanding of what young people say they care about um, their cause passions. And then on the flip side, with the Do Something website, we can really look at the, the data based on how many signups we're getting on campaigns, how many clicks we're getting to certain types of um, campaigns. And so look at kind of what people are saying they're doing and what they're actually doing. But when we're working with our clients, no member data is, is ever shared. It's more those high level kind of takeaways from um, what we've learned. If, if you kind of had a clean scape, would you kind of ask corporates to do more of um, that, what they're not doing at the moment um, in kind of any space around social change and particularly in reference to young people? Like around a specific, like a specific cause or like business practices? I, I think in, in general, kind of like business practices, like what could they be doing better? I mean, I think the first the first thing that I think about is just internal culture and internal um, kind of work environment and making sure that really they're kind of they're practicing what they're preaching and that the the internal programs they have really support their people in their passions and um, make it an open space because I think that um, if a company can really support its employees and kind of give them the brain space and, and the opportunity to kind of express their own passions that's one way just because there are especially in a really big company if you make it clear that one of your values is um, supporting your people and their cause passions i think that automatically you could be impacting thousands of people who will then go on and work on their own kind of personal projects or donate to their favorite nonprofit. Um, and so i think that's that's the number one thing in my opinion i mean then there are there are tons of other more business practice type things um 
or causes that I think people could be donating more money to or partnering with other nonprofits on. But really, I think the biggest thing is the kind of internal culture and um, and working with, with their people. Right. And how, what's the kind of um, balance between brands kind of engaging in practices around social impact and then, you know, spending money, sometimes, I guess, more money on marketing um, those actions? Like, should, I guess, ideally, you would hope that all, all these actions are kind of genuinely, like, motivated internally and you don't need to kind of trumpet um, everything that you're doing. But then again, it's like, um, with that kind of question around motivation is, do you need um, to kind of showcase the work you're doing around social impact to kind of um, kind of promote that work, um, maybe get some more funding internally even for it? Like, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to think about what the cause is. And there, cause there are some causes that really having more information and generating more awareness is kind of impact in itself. I think that anti-smoking is um, a pretty good example of this. I mean, you think about even 20, 30 years ago, people didn't have the same kind of knowledge and awareness of, of the detrimental health effects of smoking or secondhand smoke. And through kind of large scale marketing campaigns, um, a lot of different organizations, Truth being one of them, were able to make a really big difference. Um, so I think that sometimes marketing really is a form of impact. Other times, it I, I agree, I mean, it can be maybe too much. I think that really it kind of depends on the issue and the goals and how the um, the marketing kind of relates back to the impact. So if, if the marketing is one of the ways that, so for example, for Do Something, we have... Um, we do PSAs and we, we show them in schools and we typically have sponsors or kind of donated media for the, for the marketing. So we don't spend a, a ton of money on marketing. We have a, a very tiny marketing budget, but at the same time, these PSAs and the different um, influencer partnerships are really how we spread the word about our campaigns and they're what leads to signups and then to action. Um, so I think that there is, um, and I think that marketing does play an important role in social impact. I wanted to go back to, I guess, some of those projects um, you worked on um, before and currently now. And I guess this will be different from project to project. But I was wondering, how do you how do you guys go about measuring impact? Because I feel like that's uh, a tough thing to do sometimes. Definitely. Um, so I'll speak to more my work. I, I'm not going to speak too much to the do something side because I don't work as directly on that. Sure. But for our client projects, um, so, I mean, each project we do, regardless of the type of work it is, has a, a project brief um, where we lay out the goals that we align on with our clients to make sure that we all we are all on track. And then we also kind of identify key metrics of success. And it really varies from project to project. So for our SMS projects that we are um, working on, it's really pretty cut and dried. We look at the um, response rates to messages and that is literally a data point that we get from our SMS platform. Whereas something like a college board council, that one, the, the impact is a little bit, I'm not going to say it's fuzzier, but it's a little bit, maybe it takes a little bit longer to see. It's a little bit less direct, especially because a lot of the, the projects that students are giving feedback on take a long time to go through kind of approval processes. So if 
for example, um, student my students were just giving some feedback on the the instructions for the PSAT, and it's not they're they're not gonna they're they won't see their edits until next year's PSAT, um, and so those are a little bit further out. Mm. Um, and then when if we're developing a bigger engagement strategy for a client, a lot of what we're doing is coming up with kind of the, the big ideas and the initial programming. And then what we will provide is kind of maybe a one-sheeter or in a deck, just laying out how once this idea comes to life, they would collect, um, they would kind of or collect data that would analyze the success of the pilot. So it might be the number of signups, if it's kind of a, a campaign type thing, or the the number of donations, money collected, or it might be. Um, maybe there might be a survey, so it'd be kind of sentiment analysis, looking at how people felt about their experience. So there are, there are a lot of different ways. And with the measuring impact, is that more for the sake of your clients? So like, okay, we can achieve this impact with this project, or is it more f- sort of for the sake of yourselves and working out where you should be dedicating your resources to, to be creating the most, I guess, impactful the work that you do, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, because we are an arm of Do Something, TMI, we really care about making impact. And so Do Something's impact really is on the young people themselves. We are working to kind of create the next generation of socially conscious, active um, people. And so on TMI, we, we keep that in mind but we also, because we do have clients, we're really working on um, different types of projects. And so I think that, especially if it's a nonprofit client, a lot of times they need to be able to demonstrate impact to get additional funding. Um, and so that's especially key. And then corporate clients as well want to be able to to show impact so they can either kind of promote it internally, promote it externally, um, and even internally, the teams that we're working with, the corporate responsibility teams or the, or the marketing teams, they need to be able to show um, kind of the impact to their internal stakeholders so they can get funding for their projects down the line. And on that funding, um, sorry to jump in, Riggs, um, how can, um, I guess the question that comes to mind is like, how can not-for-profits afford to, to spend money on bringing in external um, an external team like yourself with TMI? I mean, I think it kind of depends on the nonprofit. We, I think also one thing that could be misleading is the term nonprofit. Nonprofit doesn't mean that an organization doesn't have money. Um, I right. think it's a, a common misperception. And it really, like, like a for-profit, it, it's an investment. Um, a, a lot of times we will be hired to do kind of a big strategy, something that people internally really can't do because they either don't have the bandwidth or they're too close to the work and they need an outside perspective. Um, Other times, if we're working on a smaller retainer type basis, um, sometimes we'll work with a client who doesn't, again, have the bandwidth internally and they figured out it's actually a little bit more cost effective to hire um, a team like ours in the short term than it is to look for and hire um, a full-time person and train them. So I think it's kind of a balancing act and it really depends on, on the individual organization. Cool. And what did you mean by retainer for those who don't um, know what that means? Totally. So retainer is one type, it's kind of agency speak, I guess, if you will. 
It means that we are kind of on call for a client. They pay us a monthly fee and we'll really work on whatever they need. So this could be anything from writing kind of Twitter copy to helping them figure out the type of um, role they actually are looking to fill and helping write up a job description. Um, it could be just kind of talking to them and brainstorming with them. It's really kind of whatever whatever they want versus working on a project basis. We would have a very clearly defined scope of work, um, a project brief that outlines the goals and the, the timeline of the project. And so I guess retainer is a little bit more fluid. It's a little more um, kind of just go, we sort of go with the flow, I guess, and it's a little more client directed versus the project is more um, directed on our side. Cool, that makes sense. Um, and I guess we will sort of start moving into like specific client problems and how you approach it more generally. But before we take that step, um, just one last point on sort of non-for-profits and supporting them with your work. Um, so I guess there sometimes exists this perception that maybe like a charity or a large non-for-profit, um, people generally don't enjoy seeing their donated money going towards services like say if a company was to hire TMI because they feel like their money in a sense is being wasted because it's not directly helping someone. And of course, if you unpack that, you realize that the charity has more impact when they use someone like TMI. So how do you sort of deal with that tension where donors really want dollar for dollar to go directly to the people, but then these organizations can't be as effective without say hiring you guys? Like, how do you be even begin to try and make sure that donors realize that this is the next best thing for the people they're trying to help? If that makes sense. That was a bit of a long question, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, so it's not something that we work on specifically, but it's something that we've talked about a lot in, in the NYU class that I took in TA'd. And I think it's kind of an age old debate. So essentially, again, in I'm speaking about the U.S. context because um, I know the most about how uh, nonprofits run legally here. Um, so we have in your finances, an organization will report the amount of money that is overhead. And so overhead is anything from the rent for the office space to salaries of people who are not directly working on a program. So the finance team, the business development team, um, things like that. And it, there is the kind of the expectation and, and the culture around this overhead percentage that the people that especially donors, like you're saying, really want to see that be lower number. Um, there are a lot of great articles out um, that have come out I would say in the last like five to seven years or so kind of challenging this um, expectation and talking about the fact that if a nonprofit can't hire um, kind of the best brains because they maybe want to go work for a bit more money, or maybe they have a lot of student loans that really can't afford to take a lower salary. It really is detrimental kind of to the entire social change space, um, just because they're losing out on that talent. Um, but so I don't think this is something that people are typically discussing. I think that nonprofits have to be really careful about how they are kind of allocating their money and making sure that if someone or I guess not allocating their money isn't the right way to phrase it, but kind of how they're reporting out their um, their overhead percentages. So, for example, if someone works partially on um, internal functions, but 75 percent of their time is on 
external facing programs, the organization is definitely going to report that 75% as external um, to kind of even out that that overhead cost. I I mean, I don't have a good answer, I guess, to to your question of how a nonprofit really talks about this, but I think it's really about making the impact clear and showing that really they need good people to do good work. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it, but it is, it's definitely a debate. It's something that I've talked about a lot in my classes and talked about um, with other people who work in the space. It's, I, I don't have the answer, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, gosh, this, it's, as you said, a massive debate. So it's, it'd be quite difficult to work out what's the best and how to answer that. So appreciate the insights regardless though. I just wanted to ask um, one more thing on the uh, loss of talent that you mentioned. Um, with the, the not-for-profit space, um, should it be, because I think sometimes there's, you know, perceptions that you know, you're going you're gonna to get paid less, you know, it might be a bit more sluggish, there's less kind of professional development. Um, should we, what, what should the not-for-profit space be doing to attract the kind of best talent. And I guess another question to that is um, ultimately, should you just be attracting kind of those people who are really embedded in the purpose and doing good? So you're kind of going to get your more kind of, I guess, hipster types, if you will, um, who are already kind of, that's kind of their their passion. Um, But should you be reaching out to a kind of broader spectrum of people and trying to get a broader range of kind of the best talent? That's a big question again. Yeah, I mean, I think that the more talented people and the the, the more diversity you have in your organization, the better um, the ideas you are going to get, the better work you're going to produce. I know that one thing we do at Do Something, we actually just today we're talking about kind of our benefits package and the, the recruitment process. Our head of HR did a presentation. Um, so one thing that I know is a problem in the U.S., like I was saying, is people who maybe need to go and um, work in a higher paying job just to, to pay off loans or to support their family. There's been a bit of a stereotype that most people who work in nonprofits are either independently wealthy or come from kind of a, a background where they don't necessarily need to be making money to support their entire family. Um, and so there has been a lack of diversity, I think, in nonprofits, which is something that a lot of organizations are really conscious of and are, are working to um, change. And so a couple of things we do at our organization is once you work at Do Something for five years, we have a loan forgiveness program for undergraduate loans, um, which can kind of offset some of those um, salary differences. Perhaps um, our organization pays quite competitively um, for the nonprofit space. And I think that really just being kind of open about the tangential benefits, I guess, of working in the space and really thinking about the company, the company culture in particular and kind of cultivating that group of passionate people, I think is a really, a really big part of attracting talent, especially now we're seeing, I mean, even just the fact that you all are doing this podcast is showing that people who are in college right now or entering college or right out of school really do want to work in purpose-driven industries, whether that be um, a social enterprise, a, a nonprofit, a, a big corporation, and more of a corporate responsibility type um, role. But I think it is something that's really appealing to our generation. Now, sort of reflecting on work with clients and sort of corporate engagements and 
all those sort of things. Um, say a client approaches you for a problem, what's the process that either yourself or TMI more broadly encourages through dealing, going through that problem, breaking it down and eventually delivering a project to the organization? Yeah, so we're a really research and data-backed um, organization and our process, I think, reflects that. So we really try to understand kind of the heart of the problem, what young people think about the problem, who the problem is affecting, and then who else in the space is kind of tackling this problem to the landscape. Um, From there, we will kind of report out our research and come to some sort of insight that will be our kind of guiding North Star, something that kind of frames the problem in potentially a a new or unique way or just makes it easier to understand. Um, And then we will move on to a communication strategy or in other projects, it might be a um, kind of engagement strategy and then the communication strategy would come later. Um, But I think something that's common throughout all projects is that first initial research and looking at kind of what we know, what we don't know and figuring out um, how to gather as much information as possible about the issue and then importantly, young people's perspective on it. And is that research process sort of the most difficult, in your opinion, of the whole project itself? Or is it like a lot easier and falls into place quite quickly? Um, I mean, I think it depends on the the problem. So for example, last year I worked on a project around financial literacy and student loans. Um, And that's an issue in the US where there is a lot of information on student loans and it's a pretty convoluted process itself. Um, But there hasn't been a ton done around kind of what young people think about financial literacy. There hasn't, there haven't been a lot of super effective programs um, in kind of tackling debt and tackling kind of knowledge of finances and personal finances. And so we, we did use some do something data. We looked, we looked into the, the financial literacy campaigns we had done. We did a huge landscape analysis. We did a, an extensive lit- literature review. And then we also did a, um, a series of interview trips around the U.S. talking to college students. because so we found we really had to collect kind of our own primary research. And so that was one that was really quite, uh, it was a big, it was a beast to, um, to do. It was, it was really interesting and really fun. Uh, but then other issues are a little bit more, I'm not going to say cut and dried, but there's a bit more um, readily available information on them or do something has done uh, more campaigns. And so we have a little bit more in-house knowledge. So I think it kind of depends. Okay. And this might be speaking more to my ignorance than anything else, but um, I guess sort of TMI's approach of like directly consulting stakeholders, in this case, young people, is that unique? Um, do you feel like that's something that TMI does different compared to anyone else you could talk to for strategy advice? Or do you feel that's sort of the trend that the um, industry as a whole is moving towards these days? I think the industry as a whole is moving towards more um, like focus groups, primary research, um, surveys. I think though that something that is unique is that we do so many focus groups and so much kind of one-on-one contact with young people. I think that that's something that a lot of um, agencies struggle with just because it is um, a, a demographic that can be a little bit harder to reach and really relate to. 
Uh, so I think that's one thing that makes us unique. And why do you think it's harder to sort of relate to this sort of younger millennial generation, so to speak? I mean, so I personally don't think it's hard because I'm only 25. Oh, but... <laughs> so we're talking to, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people as they get older, like think about the differences and they're like, oh, when I was this age, it was this way. And now people use all these different terms and they're up to speed on different um, different topics than I am. And so I think it's really just kind of a sort of a lack of, not necessarily a lack of understanding, but kind of a gap in really just contact. I think, especially if people don't have kids, they might feel a little bit more intimidated. Um, and I, I don't know, I think there's just kind of a general perception that young people can be hard to reach and that they're always distracted and always talking about different things and don't respond. Um, but I mean, we, we don't find that to necessarily be the case. Um, I have, uh, I guess one or two last questions before we wrap up, um, with, I think what, with you guys, um, you know, you've got kind of the bandwidth to, to do this research. You're mentioning the literature review. You can look at the data, look at, do something, um, and kind of what data they have around an issue. If I'm a, if I'm a young person and I'm looking at something which might not be localized, so perhaps I'm looking at like, oh, student loans, like I want to do something around student loans. How, without kind of, I guess, the immediate resources that someone like TMI does, how do you kind of apprentice or get to understanding like what are the core drivers of the problem? Is that important, do you think? Or should a young person kind of latch on to, you know, there might be another organisation that's already doing great work on this issue and kind of help out there. Do you think that kind of apprenticing and trying to understand the problem is still important? And as a young person, how can you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think trying, I think uh, gathering an understanding of the, the problem is is always important. I mean, also keep in mind that I am a research-minded person, so it's kind of my disposition. <laughs> um but I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can understand the problem, especially if you are a young person. I think that don't ever underestimate the power of just looking at what people are saying on Twitter or checking out different Instagram accounts, um, doing just a quick Google search, seeing kind of what the top hits are, doing a Google Scholar search, seeing kind of what types of more scholarly articles have been written about the problem um, and really gathering kind of different types of perspectives, even just talking to a couple friends to see what they think. And with um, kind of engaging um, young people, which is kind of the bread and butter of what you do, how can, um, how do you guys go about engaging young people? Like how do you find these young people? And, and I guess, again, putting into the shoes of a young person, um, how do you kind of engage um your friends, you know, your, your fellow students around a particular issue that, you you know, you're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one um, thing to keep in mind is kind of what are you asking people to do? I think people are a lot more likely to um, participate if you're giving them really a clear call to action and they, there's, they understand kind of, okay, this is our goal, this is what we're doing. Um, do you mean more like how do we do recruitment or more how do we kind of once we already have recruited people how do we keep them engaged i i guess both like yeah how how do you how do you reach these um young people again yeah like how do you get them to kind of engage in a focus group or a survey because certainly when i see like a focus group or a survey like if there's no inherent reward or if i'm not like really passionate about that issue, I'm like, oh, no, I can spend my time doing something else kind of thing. Like, how do you 
kind of counter that. Definitely. So, I mean, when we're doing a large scale survey and we want to make sure we have a representative um, population and we're looking for a lot of responses, we do typically incentivize. Um, it'll be just like even a drawing, something like that. Um, but we find that an incentive so You're saying it does really make a difference. Mm. But for, for other types of focus groups, like for the College Board focus group, we don't incentivize. Um, it's students who are passionate about the issue, who want to get involved. Um, we, we tell them that we're happy to be a recommender or sign off on volunteer hours, something like that. Um, so I think it's kind of about how you're framing it. And even if you're not providing um, money, thinking about kind of what value you're providing to the people who are participating. So are they learning some sort of new skill? Is it a leadership skill? Are they getting experience brainstorming? Um, can you connect them to someone else? And so thinking about kind of what those non-monetary um, incentives might be. I guess last question then, um, knowing that, um, that the people listening out there, kind of young people who are kind of interested in making an impact um, or making a difference in their local community, what's kind of any advice you would have from your own journey um, that you would give to them? And if there's anything um, you'd like to add um, that you think um, you'd like to mention and like any, another question we ask is like, is there any books or films that uh, kind of inspired you or you would recommend people checking out or publications um, for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I would give people is just speak up about what your interests are. Um, you'll be surprised about the other people who might be interested. You could start talking to each other, bouncing ideas off each other. Um, they might be able to introduce you to someone else who's also interested um, in the same causes as you are. And so I, I would say don't shy away from kind of making those connections and having those, those brainstorming moments. Um, in terms of to think of like publications, books, films that I find inspiring. I mean, I guess I've been very inspired pretty much by everything that's going on um, here in the U.S. around mm. the March for Our Lives movement. I think that just in general, check out Emma Gonzalez and anything she's talking about. Um, the Time article that was written about her is really, really inspiring, really impactful. And just even looking at all of the kind of compilations of images from marches around um, the country and the world, especially the New York Times did a really great um, photo compilation. I think that that's really inspiring and just showing that really young people are making a huge difference and generating buzz around this issue um, in a way that we really haven't seen in, in the last few years. And I think that in general, it's just, it's so inspiring to see a really student led movement. Awesome. Thanks so much um, for your time again, uh, Marie. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to our 15th episode from Lantern. And once again, that was Marie Peterson. If you're interested in finding out more about the work that Marie does with TMI Strategy, then please be sure to visit their website at tmistrategy.org. If you did enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it really does help us grow and get these amazing people's stories out to the rest of the world. If you can't wait for more, episode 16 will be live across all our channels in two weeks' time on Sunday. So that's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcast content. And you can also keep up to date on all our content that we're pushing out on social media. So whether that's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we're all under the handle projectlantern underscore, all one word. 
Or of course, check out our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us or want to reach out and just say hi, you can contact us at any time on social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. And again, we're so happy to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.